We are glad you're here today to listen to him, to listen to his message, and to worship the Lord. In Matthew 18, the first nine verses, the text says, At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and said, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And he called a child to himself and set him before them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks. For it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come. But woe to that man through whom the stumbling block comes. If your hand or foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than have it two hands and two feet and to be cast into eternal fire. If your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out and throw it from you. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and to be cast into fiery hell. Who is the greatest in the kingdom of God? There's a certain way in which Jesus' teaching has led to that question. If you look in Matthew 5 and verse 19, Jesus said, whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do so, the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus said that. In Matthew 11, In verse 11, as Jesus was talking about John the Baptist, he said, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there is not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. To some degree, Jesus' teaching had emphasized the greatest in the kingdom, the least in the kingdom. And the least in the kingdom are greater than John. So there are things about Jesus' teaching that it opened the door for this question. But I want to tell you, when the disciples ask it, I don't think it's a noble question. And when we ask it, and most of us in some way have, worried about our own position, 
It's not a noble question. Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? I want to invite you to turn with me to the gospel of Mark. And I want to see where this statement is placed in the gospel of Mark. We could make the same kind of point from Matthew, but not as clearly. Because in Mark, these accounts are back to back. Look at Mark 9, beginning with verse 30. From there they went out and began to go through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know it. For, his t- for he was teaching his disciples and telling them, The Son of Man is to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he has been killed, he will rise three days later. But they did not understand this statement, and they were afraid to ask it. Now the fact they don't understand that statement, it's stated specifically right there, In Mark 9, verse 32. But we would know that already from the conversation that follows. Because if the disciples had understood what Jesus said, they wouldn't have had the discussion that they did. But right after Jesus has talked about his cross, and we understand by implication theirs as well, because of Matthew 16. Then in verse 33, they came to Capernaum and when he was in the house, he began to question them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent. For on the way they had discussed with one another which of them was the greatest. I think that's interesting. They're discussing this among themselves. Jesus says, what were you discussing? They don't say anything originally. Because when we're talking about ourselves in our own position, we're embarrassed. And we should be embarrassed. We should be embarrassed. In verse 35, sitting down, he called the twelve And said to them, if anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. Taking a child, he set him before them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one child like this in my name receives me. And whoever receives me does not receive me, but him who sent me? Now, many of those same words are emphasized in the Gospel of Matthew. Verse 35 is unique to the Gospel of Mark. But the reason I read it is just to set back to back, side by side, Jesus' discussion of his crucifixion and resurrection. And the disciples' discussion about who would be the greatest 
And you remember in Luke 22 that on the night of the betrayal and arrest of Jesus, the disciples are involved in that discussion again. We are blessed with abundant prosperity in our country. As Andrew just alluded to that. I saw a picture this morning of a friend who's preaching in South America, in a poor area, South Central America, and he's showing the house that he's standing in. I'm not meaning to be mocking or demeaning, but it looked much like my brother's true house growing up. There's no electricity. It's raised a little bit off of the ground. We are grateful for that. And that blessing should lead us to be thankful. But I will tell you, that blessing does open the door for temptations that other people don't have as deeply as we do. If you were an underground believer in Saudi Arabia or in North Korea, my guess is those people are asking each other who's the greatest in here. Because they know that following Jesus could involve the loss of their life. But in a country like ours where we are blessed and I hope it remains this way for centuries and millenniums if the world stands. But being baptized in Christ is not a death sentence. There's not a price on your head for becoming a believer. But as a result, we get worried about rank. We get worried about position. We get worried about who's prominent and who's more important and who's getting all the attention. Who is the greatest of the kingdom if the disciples argued about it. Before my father had a show in August and Christy is with him today and with the family. I interviewed just a few weeks before his stroke. His memory was amazing at that point. And he was the only person, and he is the only person living, who has been a member of a congregation that he was part of since the congregation started in 1952. He's the only one. And... I was asking him about 
everything about the history of the church, some of the things that I lived to see, some of the things I didn't. But he talked about the period from about 1952 to about 1974, 1975. He said it was a period of great turbulence in the church. Great turbulence in the congregation. From the reports that, that he remembered and from the things that he showed me from old bulletins, there was never a preacher that stayed over a couple of years were three attempts to have elders and none of those lasted more than a year or two. But this is what I'm building up to. I said, how many of those disputes dealt with doctrine. He said, none of them. None of them. All of them were about people simply promoting themselves. May God forgive you and me. May He forgive me for times we've asked that question in an attempt to jockey for position and to promote ourselves. In this kingdom, He is everything. We are servants. But Jesus does give an answer to the question. He was asked in verse 1, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He's going to answer in verse 4, whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus takes a child as an object lesson. He takes a child as an illustration when he is asked who is the greatest in the kingdom, he takes this child, he uses him as an illustration and says, truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now, we pay attention to children a lot of times for sentimental reasons. But, but certainly, since every person is created in God's image, we ought to. 
But remember in that particular day, I mean, we have a chapter right here in Matthew 18. And later in this chapter, there's a man who owes a $10,000, a 10,000 talent debt. And in verse 25, the text tells us, sell his wife and children. So that repayment may be made. Children had no rights. Children were nobodies. Children were unimportant. And he said, whoever humbles himself as a little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now, have experience with three children. I know there are some characteristics of children that are not all that admirable. And the Bible talks about in understanding, don't be like children, but in malice be, in lack of malice be like children. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 20. The Bible warns us not to be like children in Ephesians chapter 4. In Ephesians chapter 4, who are blown by the wind. Don't be like children in every respect. But whoever humbles himself as this child. I can remember when our oldest child, Josiah, thought that we were gone from the house and he frantically looked in one room after another and found us the feeling of relief and just kind of collapsing in joy. He was afraid we left. He felt utterly lost without us. Do we feel that without God or without Christ? Do we feel that? Whoever humbles himself, children feel a sense of dependence upon their father. And we feel a sense of dependence upon God if we're great among his people. We do. Now something that deserves saying more than once, and I may have said more than once. As our children grow, as our children mature, as our children get older, they are less and less dependent upon me as a parent. They make their own decisions. They go their own ways. I hope all of them in consciousness of God, but they have to make some decisions for themselves. That is true of our children. But I want to tell you something. That's not true of our relationship with God because as we get older, as we get stronger, as we mature, and as we grow up, we're more dependent on him. And if you lose that sense of dependence, you've lost the very thing that makes people great as God's servants. The Lord appeared to Solomon in 1 Kings chapter 3. Is it ask whatever you will? And I will give it to you. 
And he says, Lord God, I am like a little child in the midst of this people. I don't know how to come in and how to go out and give me wisdom to lead the people. Solomon was acknowledging his helplessness, his dependence upon God. I am like a child. And I want to tell you something. You don't have enough wisdom and insight to choose your path, to direct your way, to know which way you should go in life. You don't, and I don't. Without his eyes. And those who are great recognize their total dependence upon Him for His forgiveness, for His mercy, for His direction, for His guidance, for everything. We're little children who don't know how to come in and how to go out. But do you notice between verse 4 and verse 5, the point changes. He encourages us to humble ourselves as a little children. By the way, in Matthew 23, 12, to humble ourselves is the exact opposite of exalting ourselves. We humble ourselves as a little child. We are dependent upon our God. But in verse 5, the emphasis changes. In verse 5, the emphasis is not so much on humbling ourselves as a child, but the child is used as an object of receiving, receiving one such child in my name receives me. And by, and by the way, the word of my is emphatic, or receives me, excuse me, is emphatic. And the point is, we are receiving Jesus when we are receiving one like this little child who believes in him. Paul looked at the church at Corinth and said, Not many noble, not many wise, not many great. According to this world, our call. First Corinthians 1, verses 26 through 31. James warned in James 2, when a rich person comes into your assembly, you don't fawn over him while you neglect the poor man who comes into your assembly. And you say, sit here at my footstool. You don't do that. We are receiving those who are humble enough to be disciples of Jesus. It may be nothing in the eyes of the world. They may not carry initials in front of their name or behind their name. And they may not have a bank account so that everyone calls their name when they walk into their local branch bank whatever they walk into. <laughs> but they're followers of Jesus. 
They're followers of His. And when we receive one in His name, because they believe in Him, we are receiving Him. Matthew 10, 40. He who receives you receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. And the powerful judgment scene in Matthew 25 illustrates the same as the kindness shown to those who are in prison and those who are hungry and thirsty is kindness shown toward him. So the question is asked from the wrong motives. But that doesn't mean there's not in a certain sense an answer. But as the answer is given, the way the disciples ask the question becomes irrelevant. May God help us to become lost in who He is and lost in His service so that we lose consciousness of our standing among His people. Verses 1 through 5 are what we would describe as more positive. Verses 6 through 9, more negative, is it warns us of the danger of causing one of these little ones to stumble. I want you to notice the contrast in the text. In verse 5, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Receives. That is contrasted in verse 6. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble. To receive such a one is the exact opposite of causing one to stumble. And this section from verses 6 through 9 is held together largely by that word stumble which is mentioned in one way or another in every verse. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for a heavy millstone to be hung around his neck and him to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Now, the book of Matthew talks about, in Matthew 24, about women crying in a meal. One will be taken, one will be left in Matthew 24 in verse 41. There were hand meals that, that normal people used. But there were also meals that, that donkeys pulled that were much heavier. You remember when Revelation 18, 21 illustrates judgment on Babylon. They threw a heavy millstone in the sea and it sank and it said, Thus Babylon is sunk. Paraphrasing that passage, Revelation 18, 21. This is a heavy millstone that's hung around your neck and the person that's thrown is thrown in the depths of the sea. The point is, the person he's describing in verse 6 is going to drown. No ifs, ands, and buts about it. 
to drown. That because one of these little ones who believe in me It is better to die a death such as that than to call someone to stumble. We live in a world of evil and sin. And it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come. This world is a dangerous place physically. And spiritually, it's a dangerous place. As verse 7 says, woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks. For it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come. There are going to be things that are going to cause people to fall away in this world. It's inevitable in this wicked world in which we live. But woe to that man through whom the stumbling blocks. But they're going to be things that are going to cause people to fall away. But woe to that person who is guilty. I wrote down the verse. It's a matter of life and death. But I put down eternal because it's bigger than life and death. We've already seen that it's better to drown in the midst of the sea with this millstone around our neck. It's better to drown like this than to cause one little one to stumble. It's bigger than life or death. This is about eternal life and eternal death. Jesus contrasts that in verses 8 and 9. If your hand or foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. It is better to enter life crippled or lame than to have two hands or two feet and to be cast into eternal fire. And by the way, these words also appear in Mark 9, which we read this past week. If your eye causes you to stumble, verse 9, pluck it out and throw it from you. For it is better for you to, uh, it's better for you to go into eternal life with one eye than to have two eyes and to be cast into fiery hell. It's better to be drowned than to lead another to stumble. Woe to that person who causes another to stumble and if your hand, if your foot, if your eye encourages you to stumble, cut it off. I hope I don't have to say, and if you need further instruction on this, honestly, please feel free to ask. That Jesus is not literally encouraging amputation, but he is telling us, do whatever it takes to remove sin from your life because it is a matter of heaven and hell to remove sin from your life and to cause others to sin. 
Jesus contrasts entering life in verse 8 with being cast into eternal fire. With entering life in verse 9 with being cast into fiery hell. I found it interesting that there are different words one you enter life. People will rush when given that blessing in the last day. And maybe it's making too much of it, but no one will enter hell by their own volition. They will be cast into it. As a parent, you warn your children a lot of times when you see them do wrong things. When you see them as a young child reach for a stove or try to stick something in an electrical outlet, you respond. If it's a close disaster, you shout! you love them and don't want them to destroy themselves. If Jesus who died for us loves us more than we can fathom, than we can imagine. But he warns us he warns us of judgment. He promises us life. He warns of judgment to keep us from destroying ourselves. And if it involves removal of hand, foot, and eyes, dramatic instrument. But you see, Tying this passage with the greatest in the kingdom. Maybe it's just that hard to curb our instinct for self promotion and to surrender ourselves to Him. Let us pray. Oh, Lord, our God, how great you are, how deep your love, how profound your mercy. As you speak of your cross, we are often busy at promoting ourselves, at pondering our position. Forgive us, O oh God, 
May we humble ourselves, realizing how weak and helpless and dependent upon you we are, and how we cannot take a step for ourselves. May we acknowledge that, and may that be lived out in every area of our life. May our story, O oh God, be none of self and all of thee. Forgive us and hold us in your hand. In Jesus we pray. Amen. Non-Christian friend. You don't know how to relate to yourself. You don't know how to manage your life. Just like none of us do. But I'll tell you, by listening to him, you're following a guy who loves you intensely and has your best interests at heart who has done all he could to rescue you from that fiery judgment and to give you eternal life. He has died for your sin. He has been raised. He transformed these selfish men to become proclaimers of his message who died for his cause. 